0: or at whatwasthatlike.com Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable. Where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds: experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories; They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical, therapist approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Weird a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent
1: of a weird... Morning. murder. Sometimes a verdict can be met with a lot of anger and resentment. On November 11th, 1994, a young man was caught in the crosshairs of an angry mob. And when the trial for his killers eventually came to a close, many were left shocked and believing the court system may have gotten something wrong. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. To understand today's murder, you have to know a bit of background about what was happening in the Fox Chase area of Philadelphia. Prior to the crime that we talk about today, tensions between the teens of Fox Chase and the teens of Abington Township started to rise when a group of Fox Chase kids tossed a plastic cup of soda into an Abington Township girl's car. When word of the incident made its way back to the township, like most rumors, it had grown into something much bigger and much more nefarious. The version that started to make its rounds claimed that the Fox Chase boys had actually raped the girl in the parking lot of a local McDonald's. And as a retaliation, a group of Abington teens took it upon themselves and made plans to make good on the warning she had allegedly made the night of the incident, yelling out, you're all getting fucking beat up next weekend. According to witnesses, the girl came back to Fox Chase early the following Friday, November 11th, 1994, in the company of another Abington teenager who drove their own car. Testimonies claim that the passengers of both cars started making threats similar to the one she made a week before and warned of their impending beating that was slated to happen later that night. They left, and at around 9.30 p.m., five cars packed to the brim with kids from Abington arrived in Fox Chase in what was later described as a tightly formed caravan. With music blaring, the cars stopped at a local 7-Eleven and took over their parking lot, demanding directions to the McDonald's where the initial incident had taken place. One boy was overheard saying, "'Come on, we have to do this. "'We have a job to get done. "'Let's do this before the police come.'" to which another jumped up and down, yelling, I'm so psyched I could kill someone, before they all sped away. Arriving at the McDonald's at around 10 p.m., all of the passengers jumped out of their cars and began chasing every single fox chase teen they saw with broken off hockey sticks and baseball bats, outnumbering the perceived enemy by at least 13 to 2. One was cornered and beaten within an inch of his life before his friends could pull him to freedom and the rest of the fox chase teens raced away from the fast food restaurant. Watching as chaos descended upon their normally peaceful neighborhood, an adult called 911. Then another, then another. Before long, a handful of calls were coming into Philadelphia's 911 service with expectations that, with as many as 40 to 50 kids running around armed, the police would be sent out ASAP. But, for one reason or another, no patrol cars were ever dispatched, leaving the mob to do exactly what mobs do best, escalate. The kids, who by now were hurling rocks, screaming obscenities, and damaging property, flew past a local church where 16-year-old Eddie Pollack just so happened to be sitting while he waited to walk home with his younger brother. Eddie was a complete stranger to these kids, but clouded by pure adrenaline, the Abington teens started to descend upon the boy who soon found himself being chased down by a succession of cars. He was cut off at all angles, as were any of the other teens trying to come to his aid, and a passenger from one of the cars threw out his baseball bat, and Eddie immediately fell to the ground. The moment he was on the ground, the Abington mob got out their weapons and began beating Eddie Pollock while he pleaded for his life. They pulled him back onto his feet so that someone could use their bat to take swings at his head and after eight blows, Eddie was dropped back to the ground and unceremoniously kicked in the face with a steel toe boot. As he took some of his last few breaths, the teens piled back into their cars and sped off, laughing and giving high fives as they abandoned the boy that they had just murdered. When authorities finally showed up to the scene, 40 minutes after the first 911 call, they would describe it as one of the most brutal murders in all of Philadelphia history. Edward William Pollock was picked up off the church steps where he had served as an altar boy and rushed to the hospital where, after a full night of intensive medical treatment, he died the following morning. When news of his brutal murder made it to the public, Eddie's friends gathered outside the church to mourn his loss. While they wiped the tears from their eyes, four girls from Abington who had been part of the caravan that night attended a party and by all accounts were completely unfazed by the fact that they had just been involved in the murder of a well-liked boy with no ties to any of the teens involved in the initial incident. His memorial, viewing, and funeral were attended by well over 4,000 individuals who came to pay their last respects. His funeral procession reportedly a mile long. As the whole city seemed to grieve the loss of Eddie Pollock, media from all over the nation grabbed onto the story and threw it straight into the spotlight. Everyone was shocked to hear about such a brutal crime taking place in a middle-class residential part of the city, and its controversy peaked when it was reported that a white altar boy was killed at the hands of mixed-race teenagers from a neighboring upscale suburban area that, as far as everyone knew, was incapable of committing such a crime. None of it seemed to make sense, especially when the 911 response time was reported and the extraordinarily slow response time of the Philadelphia police put almost all of the blame on their shoulders, because had they responded to the first 911 call that came in, the mob would have been long dispersed before Eddie Pollack was ever even on their radar the head of the union that represented the 911 operators stated that the reason for their questionable performance was because they had been working with outdated equipment, were vastly underpaid, and had not been trained properly by the city. Nevertheless, Philadelphia's mayor at the time took immediate disciplinary action against the operators, who later appeared on the Oprah Winfrey show to argue that they had done their job well that night. To try and prove this, the 911 calls themselves were given national airplay, but in the end, they only confirmed all of the accusations against the operators. They would later go on the record to say that, because each of the operators accused was black, they were being made political scapegoats to take the blame rather than blame and correct the outdated system. That claim was later denounced by the president of Philadelphia's branch of the NAACP, who later said, This is not a racial issue. It is a human issue. They appealed the city's disciplinary actions and were eventually exonerated while the mayor and other officials worked to fix the clearly neglected 911 system. While all of this was happening, the investigation into Eddie's murder led to the arrest of seven Abington teens, all aged between 16 and 18 years old. Six were charged with murder and the seventh was charged with supplying bats used in the crime. Of the seven arrested... Four were students at Abington High School, one was a graduate and two came from different schools, one was expelled from school for bringing in a gun, several were on probation for various offenses, and all had some sort of school disciplinary record, most for violent behaviors. While many others were involved in the mobs that night that led to Eddie's murder, these were the only seven arrested. When asked why, investigators claimed that the others had to be ruled out to keep the case manageable. According to officials, when all of the teens were brought in for witness statements, the females were found to be defiantly untruthful and the boys completely remorseless. The kids, all from good areas where crime wasn't really an issue, were attacked in the media with headlines referring to Abington High School as murder high. In response to the media's gruesome messages, Eddie's own family came to their aid calling for peace on the local television stations and asking the media and Philadelphia's citizens to let the police do their job. After their outcry, not a single retaliation attempt was reported and the media went back to berating the 911 operators. The trial began on January 2nd, 1996 with attorney Angela Charles Peruto Sr. working for the defense. A man famous for never losing a murder case and representing some of Philadelphia's biggest organized crime figures. All of the defendants were being tried as adults, but the courts had already agreed to take the death penalty off the table, an act backed by the Pollock family who strongly opposed execution. After several weeks of arguments, graphic medical photos, witness testimonies, one violent outburst in the courtroom hallway, and six days of deliberation, on February 5th, 1996, a jury announced their verdict. Dewan Alexander was convicted of manslaughter for kicking Eddie with his steel-tipped boots. Kevin Conby pled guilty to third-degree murder and conspiracy for hitting Eddie with the bat. And Anthony Reinzi, Nick Panero, and Thomas Cook were convicted of third-degree murder. In the middle of a crowd of very mixed emotions, the prosecutor was overheard whispering, Eddie Pollock is dead, and so is justice in the city of Philadelphia. Many have agreed with his statement. As they left the courtroom, Eddie's father told reporters that, while they accepted the verdict, they did not understand it. When their sentencing hearing took place on March 19th, each of the defendants were asked if they had any last statements to say before the court. Only one obliged and was the only defendant to express remorse for the murder of Eddie Pollock. Because of this, he became the only one to receive mercy in his sentencing. His sentence, which was supposed to carry a 15 to 30-year prison term, was reduced to six months. The rest were given between eight and 20 years behind bars, but between 2001 and 2004, four of them have been paroled. In exchange for agreeing not to sue the city, Eddie's family became instrumental in making sure the mayor made good on his promise to upgrade the city's 911 system. They did so in September of 1998. In the aftermath of his murder, Eddie's father became a much-sought-after public speaker and does volunteer work for the nonprofit Lost Dreams on Canvas. And Fox Chase itself has created a town watch association that was eventually led by the first 911 caller the night that Eddie was killed. Since then, there has not been another incident of violence in the neighborhood. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to What Terrible Thing Happened on November 12th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.